0: The Conservative Conscience.
1: And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience on this Friday of Memorial Day weekend, May the 24th. And we are really excited to have an extended weekend. I know a lot of you are family time, downtime, and of course, commemorating the ultimate sacrifice of our great soldiers throughout the years. You know, usually, usually Congress is out earlier than Friday. Wednesday or Thursday, before this week, they're off all next week, but they had a little bit of mischief to deal with. Now, you're not going to hear anywhere else discussion over this budget bill and its significance, not just on spending, because let's face it, no one seems to give a darn about that, but on the border issue as well, on the president's entire legacy and his entire purpose in office. Because Unfortunately, this is pretty much the only show that has truth, independence, passion, and depth all wrapped into one town hall briefing for traditional constitutional conservatives. You have the news in Europe that Theresa May, Prime Minister of England, is resigning effective June 7th. Now, why am I talking about Theresa May in the context of what I want to talk about with Congress? Well, she is the leader of the Tory party. That's officially the right-leaning party in England. And as we, as you well know, there is nothing right-leaning on a single issue about Theresa May. The Tories are a transgender party. You can't tell what gender it is. Basically, the Tories are gonna are going to get crushed because they have all the liabilities of being in power, but none of the benefits. Doesn't that line sound a little familiar to some of you? You know, everyone's, the people who want the left will vote for the left. The people who want the right have nowhere to turn. Is that really what we want the future of our country? Because we are pretty much there. You look at these members of Congress, there is no difference between them and the Democrats. The one thing standing between that was supposed to be the election of Donald Trump. And I want to demonstrate to you how that's all going out the window. So you had this $19 billion spending bill. Supplemental disaster spending. When we've spent $117.5 billion on separate disaster bills. More disaster aid in the regular bills. The agencies that are going to get this money, community block programs, grant block grant program in HUD, transportation, agriculture, their base, regular spending is at record high levels. The president promised much less spending in his budget. He promised to stop bailing out Puerto Rico. And most of all, he said, if we're going to vote on a disaster, well, by golly, the biggest disaster is at our border. And we're certainly going to vote on that. So if you're going to have money for disaster spending, you're going to have, he asked, $4.3 for the border. So as always, Republicans got together, headed by the head of the Senate Appropriations Committee, Richard Shelby, a Republican from Alabama, got together and made a compromise. Well, Democrats wanted $19 billion in pork spending, a Puerto Rico bailout, and no border funding, so they made a compromise and gave them $19 billion in spending, Puerto Rico bailout, and no border funding. That's the difference between the two parties. Now, President Trump tweeted all along that he's demanding border funding. He tweeted all along that Puerto Rico doesn't need more funding. But as always noticed, there's been a pattern the last two years where the president tweets his dismay with what's percolating in Congress, but he won't threaten a veto. And the Republican leadership knows he will not veto it. So it's a game. Let me tell you the irony of this. The president even tweeted out, if you remember, what was it? Just about a week ago, he retweeted this show right here, this very show. I put out a, t- a tweet of the title of that day's show. It was May 11th, a little more than a week ago, almost two weeks ago. Congress believes everything is a disaster and an emergency except for the border. That was the title of a show we put out. I tweeted it, and the president of the United States of America retweeted this very show. Okay, the link to this show was embedded in the president's tweet. Now, I could be all googly-eyed and like, ooh, ooh, the president retweeted me. But instead, I care more about results and the future of this country. And the president now goes, and he said yesterday after they forged the deal, but before they voted on it, he announced that, um, oh, this is great. This is awesome. The U.S. Senate has just approved the $19 billion disaster relief bill with my total approval. Great. That's his tweet. It was right after, after they passed the bill. So, I mean, this has been going on and on and on every single time. This bill literally embodies the premise that Trump retweeted from me that Congress considers everything a disaster and an emergency and in, in need of imminent redress in Congress except for the border. And that's exactly what this bill did. It funded every pork priority that's already being funded at record levels, including programs like the Community Block Grant program that the president promised to eliminate, much less not increase spending. No funding for the border. And yet he's like, hey, it has my full support. You know, everyone's wondering why only eight Republicans voted no in the Senate. But it's the, the president. The president, he didn't just like reluctantly do it. He blessed it. If the president from day one would say... I will veto it without the following priorities. It's a very different story. You'd certainly have enough Republicans to sustain a veto. This has been the story of the last two years, but this is going to be the story, my friends, of the next five and a half years, even if he wins a second term. We're always going to have the 60-vote threshold. So they're never going to pass anything. We know that. Even, even even, in the best-case scenario of the outcome of 2020 and, frankly, 2022. They will never have 60 votes in the Senate. So you're left with what? You're left with the leverage of budget bills that they consider must-pass bills. Well, I'm not going to sign what you want until you give me what I want. Okay. What are you going to give me that I want? But no, 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 no. That has been gone. Debt ceilings and budgets. Budgets because we can't have a government shutdown. The president has been convinced of that. Will not use the bully pulpit, even when he has a beautiful message like like this on the border. I mean, the press releases write themselves. And we, and we can't fight the debt ceiling because we're going to have a default, even though we won't. Because you only default if you don't pay the interest on the debt. And there's certainly a lot more, you know, enough money from revenue without servicing debt to cover that, Medicare, Social Security, and all the vital functions. It's, you know, a lot of the pork you're going to have to cut. And it would be gradual. And you have leverage in that fight. Once you pass that deadline, you know, it's not a cliff. But they're not going to fight. We know they're going to give that up. So you have one thing left, which are bills that are considered somewhat must-pass Both parties in Congress really want it to pass. But there's no like government shutdown if you don't pass it. This supplemental bill was about as good of a leverage package that you're ever going to get for this president for the remainder of his presidency. It was a budget bill, it addressed spending. He wasn't even asking for border wall funding, it was other border funding. Wrapped into the message of disaster, which it certainly is at the border. If you want to be a squish, you could call it a humanitarian crisis. And that was it. That was it. The president could have had amazing leverage here and said, look... If you're going to sit and spend us into oblivion and if he's going to cave on Puerto Rico and the and the pork for HUD and whatever, then at least if you're, if you're on a spending binge, then at least spend on the border. But no, they had the spending binge and not a dime for the border. I mean, including like emergency stuff. They literally don't have enough funding for bed space for anything. Literally, I mean, emergency people are being dumped into communities. Forget that even money for repatriation and airlifts. God forbid we should push for that. I'm saying even just to to manage the catch and release. He will not push for anything. I mean, I don't know what to say. And then you have Mick Mulvaney, who's the chief of staff, who's a loser. A big libertarian. So he's a rabid, rabid open borders. Oh, but at least we'll benefit from his libertarianism on spending, right? Huh, so much for that. Remember Mick Mulvaney? In 2017, that very first budget betrayal, now there's about 10 of them. Oh, the next budget we'll fight on. What a liar. And nobody's going to talk about this. So what were they going to do? Today they were just going to pass it in the House by unanimous consent because it's slightly different than the version that originally passed the House, so they have to pass it again. Now, they wanted to run out of town this morning, so they don't have time to pass a new rule and have a full debate. So he wanted to ask for unanimous consent to just suspend the rules and pass it by voice vote, thereby shielding people from going on the record and having a recorded vote. One man stood up, Chip Roy, and he said no. He objected to unanimous consent. They don't want to wait around because they have all their flights. So it effectively delays it. And they're going to be out all next week. So it delays it until the following week. Now, the White House is pissed at Chip Roy, and they were calling him last night when they found out he was going to do this. And they're stupid because Chip is actually giving the president leverage by playing bad cop here. Giving him a week and a half to now say, look, well, you know, Chip blocked it. You're going to have to put in their border funding. What is it this administration really wants? Oh, we have to win the election. Tell me, folks, what is going to change? Nothing. If you can't even fight on something like this at a time like this with messaging like this. Again, we're not even talking about our priorities here at the conservative Conscience. We're talking about like the, you know, more funding for HHS and handling the UACs and, you know, humanitarian aid. That's really what it was. Nothing. This is it is. But if I'm the only one talking about this, it's not gonna matter. It's not gonna matter. So I mean the president can make fun out of Theresa May all he wants, but he's doing the same thing. So that's with that's the latest with this budget betrayal, which really, if you think about it, is an immigration betrayal. And again, this is where the president's leverage comes in. This would have been a perfect vehicle, mixing their desire to pass this bill before Memorial Day. Okay? The president could have mixed his executive power together with his veto. That's all he has. He has a a veto pen, he has a bully pulpit, and he has executive actions. You mix the two and give relentless speeches. They are voting on emergency spending and they will not address the border. And you talk about the cartels, which we're going to talk about in a a minute with our guest, Jason Jones. And you talk about the fiscal effects on our communities, the crime, the drugs, the gangs, all the things we've been talking about. And then you say, these guys have endless $22 trillion in debt and they don't have money for our border? Are you kidding me? And then you know what you do to leverage them? An 1182F shutdown which he uh, of, of asylum claims, which he should be doing anyway. Really, he should be doing that anyway. But if he doesn't really want to do it but just wants to leverage for his humanitarian aid, at least threaten it. Threaten to get rid of DACA. That's why I'm sick of hearing the excuses. Oh, the Pelosi House, the 60-vote threshold ain't my homework. The district judge ain't my homework. You know why it's BS? Because even the areas where that's not applicable, he still doesn't fight on. Our founders thought that the veto would make the president a king. They were fearful of it, which is why originally the um, veto override threshold was three quarters and they lowered it to two thirds. But you still you still see it's so hard to get two thirds because normally, you know, in this country, the orientation of Congress is roughly 50-50. So you need a significant portion of the president's party to join to override a veto. Now, again, you might see, oh, almost every Republican voted for it, but that's only because Trump blessed it. If Trump would have said, I'm vetoing it, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have done it from his own party. You, you saw that with the vote on Yemen, and you saw that with the vote on the original emergency declaration. The only two times president issued a veto, almost every Republican stood with the president. They will follow his lead. But if he makes a game that, oh, I'll grumble on Twitter a month before passage about the bill, but won't threaten a veto, and they'll know I'm not going to veto it, yeah, then they're going to pass it. So, so frustrating. On June 4th, 1787, one of the greatest founders, James Wilson, he predicted the veto would be so powerful that it would, quote, be seldom used, seldom be used. Why? Because just the threat that he'll just shut it down, that it has no effect of law without his vote, without his signature, just knowing that that power existed, they would refrain from making such laws as it would be sure to defeat. That's what he said. How weak is this administration? That's what I'm saying. I know they're not going to fight on spending. I get it. But use that leverage to at least, if you're going to have a a -a spend-a-thon, then add in spending on the border. And look, with me dumping on the president and the White House... uh, So justifiably, I believe I do want to balance it out by noting that he did promote two executive actions overnight that I think are worthy of mentioning. One was getting rid of the transgender mandate in Obamacare, mandating that plans cover transgender mutilation operations, whatever. And then also he is starting with the public charge doctrine to somewhat enforce our public charge laws at least making those who sponsor the chain migration, the family-based categories of green cards to pony up uh, the, the funding when their relatives that they sponsored go on welfare. Um, now, in both of those cases, it was a promulgation. It wasn't a promulgation of a regulation. It was a memorandum instructing the agencies to write a regulation. So again, we've seen times where that didn't even get written. Moreover, as we know, the courts... And we know the administration will not stand up to the court. So, you know, this is just what I want to note. There's there is good coming out of there, but the problem is it's not enduring. And what is enduring is bad. Now, nothing is more enduring than the damage to this country from the breakdown of our sovereignty, the empowerment of the cartels, their contractors, the degree of criminality in this country. I want to talk today with our guest, Jason Jones, about. The coming crime wave that we're going to see of unimaginable proportions based on what we're seeing at the border now. I want to get another intel briefing from Jason. Jason obviously has become a regular on this show. He's a retired captain from Texas DPS's Intel and Counterterrorism Division. Um, as part of the Texas Rangers, he managed daily operations for their Border sec- Security Operations Center So he's really clued clued into the cartels, even to this day. After retiring, he runs a private uh, intel firm, uh, still instructing and teaching federal and local law enforcement on uh, homeland security issues, intel threats, particularly dealing with the cartels. So for the third or fourth time, and we're going to keep doing this, it is our honor and privilege to welcome Jason back to the show. How are you doing, Jason?
0: Hey, I'm doing great, Dan. How about yourself?
1: Well, I know you're certainly very tired. You've been traveling all over the country the last couple of days. I don't want to keep you too long today, but if you could just start out by giving us a basic, basic status update, um, you know, it's the situation at the border is more unprecedented every time we talk, and it's worse and worse. We certainly see it with the numbers of illegals and the stress on America if you could give us a status update on what, what is going on behind the scenes in terms of the cartels benefiting from this unprecedented invasion.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and thanks for having me. It's great to be able to have the opportunity to talk to the folks because this is what I'm doing now, trying to explain what's happening at that southwest border and how it directly affects them because it does. So kind of just to catch everybody up where we are sitting right now, um, since October, we are sitting at five hundred and thirty one thousand seven hundred and eleven. I mean, that's a lot of people. Half a million people apprehended at our southwest border um, just since through, uh, since October. Now, you got to ask yourself why, where are they going and, and what does it mean for the country? So if we go back a little bit to around February, we began to see how these caravans began migrating west. You know, you and I had quite a few conversations about this because I I began to believe to see how the movement of west was the easiest route for them to get into the United States. On the Mexico side, their fear is their safety. And the state of Tamaulipas, uh, just across from McAllen, Texas, where you have Reynosa and Matamoros and some of those towns— The violence was really picking up between the cartels. And so as the caravans formed, we first began to see them move west into uh, Piedras Negras. After that, they then went the path of least resistance to El Paso. And the reason for that is because of the infrastructure in Mexico that allows them the easiest passage. The closest city is is Juarez, which they can then cross into El Paso. So kind of just to give you some numbers on family units which is uh, we've seen an 1,800, 1,800% increase in the El Paso sector for people crossing into the city of El Paso just in the last few months. So those numbers are just rising and they're continuing to rise as we speak. So I began to look to say, okay, we're seeing those changes, but the, what's the so what, what's the why to that? What's the driver there? Now, if you look at what's happening on the U.S. side, if you look at New Mexico, which the El Paso sector covers, where we're seeing these massive increases in apprehensions, what we saw domestically is we saw a governor in New Mexico who pulled all of her National Guard forces off of the border. Now, to compound that issue, we then saw Border Patrol having to respond to a humanitarian crisis, which affect their operational uh, capabilities between the ports of entry. So as they pulled off the border itself, Border Patrol to help with the humanitarian cause, which by the way, Dan, that was the right call. They then also had to shut down their interior checkpoints. Now to me, this was a major tripwire. This is a problem. In March, Border Patrol shut down their interior checkpoints. I've been I've been in law enforcement 24 years. I never remember a time when we shut down our interior checkpoints because what they are is they are the secondary stop to try to stop those who have come into the country illegally and also to try to stop narcotics from coming into the country that have made it uh, past our, our border enforcement efforts. So began to look at that, and then we had a couple of of significant events. Uh, You may remember in April, we had uh, six Sedena soldiers disarmed on U.S. soil, disarmed one of our soldiers. So that began to make me wonder as to why is this happening and what are we seeing? Reaching out to sources within the Mexican cartels, they're just making money hand over fist. Um, And they are pushing out orders to send as many drugs as you can because El Paso um, and the New Mexico area are wide open. You have lack of enforcement at the border between the ports of entry, compounded by no National Guard and no interior checkpoints. We've never been here. And so the the word was out is that send everyone you can, all the drugs you, you can into the country, major problem there, major problem. And we are gonna have a lot of effects from this around the country to the folks as a result of it now that's on the drug side now let me get back to the people for just a second because there are so many people crossing what the cartels traditionally do is they have stash houses on the mexico side and they hold you uh if you're trying to cross into the country until you pay the piso or the tax and i know you've heard me talk about that that's just your fee for crossing through their plaza well, we have so many people coming from Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, who are extremely poor, they can't pay, Dan. And this was the thing that really made me worry because what I began to hear from the cartels is that they were allowing some payment to be received, but they were going to hold these people in what we call debt bondage, where they owe the cartel, but still let them go into the country. Now, that is a major change in what anything we've seen the cartels do in the past, because historically, once you get into the United States, you know, you've got no ties to the cartels. That's not the case anymore. Now the cartels are taking all of these people's uh, personal identifying information, their phone numbers, their mother, their father's information, all known relatives in the United States, and they validate it and then they send them through. And they give them dates when they need to call back so that they can keep up with their payments. And what we're already begin to, beginning to see is that throughout the country, we're seeing stash houses farther north than we've ever seen. Houston, Dallas, uh, we've seen those in the past, but we've never seen them go through a, a le- legitimate legal process after being apprehended in the U.S. and now owning the cartels. And we're seeing that now. And to me, We've got to be telling the folks what's happening because I'm afraid that we're going to see this debt bondage, which is a form of human trafficking that the American people are just not used to.
1: So there's a lot to unpack there. So, you know, first off, most Americans, when they think of the smugglers, cartel guys, they think on the Mexican side of the border, Okay, that that's how they get them over to America. And then they're here in America. They do what they want. But in fact, really they have such a robust network in America because of all the garbage we've let in and all of the lack of sovereignty for so many years. So we've allowed them to operate. They operate all over the place, all 50 states. And they're able to place them in debt bondage um, You know, even after they're they're here. And then also, you see, like you said, the second point that was very interesting, it's not just those sneaking in. It's even those that come openly to surrender themselves. So you think, oh, you don't need the smuggling experience. But no, they go. I heard the same thing about, you know, speaking with people from HSI. They go right back into the criminal underworld after catch and release. And there's secondary smuggling, meaning there's the smuggling to get into America. But then often, so you think you need the stash houses for the guys that are sneaking over the border and they get like right over the border. But no, it's the guys coming out openly, too. In CBP custody, in ICE custody, they get released. They go back to stash houses for the smuggling within our country. Let's say from El Paso, Las Cruces to the East Coast. Are, are you are you hearing similar a, dynamics?
0: A- absolutely, and they, we are. And so this is the change. This is the game changer, and why I am coming out trying to talk. And make sure the word gets out to the Northeast and to those folks in the North who just don't see um, what we see down here. We've never been here like this. It is not normal to see people be smuggled illicitly into the country, become apprehended, then go through a legitimate system, have the ability to be here legally, and then go right back into the criminal underworld. And we're there now. And, and so what you're going, what you're seeing is a form going from human smuggling and then into human trafficking because these people are indebted to the cartels. And when you talk about human trafficking, human trafficking, um, I want to go into that for just a second because that can get a little confusing. Uh, human trafficking has really three phases to it or three forms. It, you know, a lot of the folks are familiar with the sex side of this but they're not familiar that what is also a part of the human trafficking world is labor. And now debt bondage, debt bondage is kind of the final realm. Really what, what that is is slavery. It's indentured servitude. And we're going to see that. Now, those are, those are crimes, Dan, that we see in underdeveloped countries, never here in the United States. You know, many of your listeners remember a time when we didn't even have the term, we didn't have laws on the books for human trafficking. And now we do. And so as we see these massive increases in numbers of people, as we have a lack of border security, the American people are going to be hit with a crime wave we've not seen before. And that is, one, a new form of human trafficking that's going to sweep the nation, and two, narcotics that are just being pushed at a very large number.
1: Yeah, that that is lovely. And, and the thing is, you know, we've spent this week discussing a lot about my part of the country, which in many respects, you see the effect a lot more than your part of the country, because this is the destination. It's the dumping ground and you don't have an airlift. So that's the problem. People don't see it. You know, people are opposed to airlifts, but they don't see the gradual dumping of hundreds of thousands in the Maryland, Virginia area. And the degree of MS-13 criminality we have from the Central Americans, the young, the, the youth coming over. So to me, I think to begin with, this is a very um, vulnerable population to criminality that, that is incontrovertible. The rates are clear in Central America. It's a homogenous population. It's not you know a distinct minority that we're bringing in. It's of the same doing the crime they're not all doing it but it's of that same group and then now you add to it the desperation of needing to pay off cartel debt and the degree of cartel um control in all 50 states holy smokes i mean the robberies we're gonna see you know aside from the drug trafficking just you know the break-ins to pay to get money to pay off pay off the debt
0: absolutely we call those your local index crimes and you're going to see you know one crime trend will form into another and into another and you're absolutely going to see that in communities around the country and look as time moves you know as time goes on over the next few months it's going to start to get out what we're talking about right now and you know there's going to be a lot more articles on this there's going to be a lot of um uh, good reporting on it but the problem is and here's the real issue there is nothing going out to the American people showing them from law enforcement what is being seen. Now, we've got to talk about this because solutions matter, right? There's always problems out there, but what are the solutions? Because there is no there is no plan in the government right now to secure the border to fix this problem. We still have caravans coming up in waves back to back all the way down to South America. There is nothing as, we, as you and I are talking that is slowing this process down. So right now we're at half a million. Where are we going to be by the end of the year? Well, if you look at the stats, we're going to be at a million people. Um, but where are we going to be next year? And with no plan to shut this down, Dan, this is a problem. So what can we do and how can we monitor this as it moves through the country? Well, there's one thing we need to discuss. The failed uniform crime report does not capture 21st century crimes. So as this virus that you and I have been talking about spreads across the country, Human trafficking uh, is not captured. And so law enforcement is not going to see until it's too late the impact in every community across this country on this. Same thing with drugs. My guy, we've been in a drug war for, what, 60 years? And we don't capture all drug seizures at local, state, and federal levels. Same thing. So as the, the large amounts of meth that the cartels are pushing in New Mexico right now, um, and really, in, in many states along that southwest border, um, this this wave of, of, of narcotics being shipped into the country is just going to continue. So we have we have no plan there to stop that. But what can be done? What can be done is collaboration. The Department of Defense needs to be sending soldiers down. Now, they are fighting this. That's why you saw recently they only sent lawyers, truck right. drivers, and cooks. But by they the way, they just sent
1: – it was just announced, just so you know um, – Literally, as we're recording, 1,500 more troops to the Middle East, just so you know.
0: <laughs> to the Middle East, but not to our Southwest border. You know, Dan, I, I'm so frustrated about this. We have an open border between the ports of entry. We've got border patrolmen who are incredible people. I talk to them every single day. They are, they are absolutely frustrated beyond belief. You know, why do we not have uh, our soldiers down there? Why do we not have FBI, DEA, HSI? working between the ports of entry to hold the line. I mean, just between the ports of entry since October, we've had 460,000 seizures or apprehensions of people. 460,000 between the ports. That's where the surge is really happening. It's not on the ports of entry. So we've got to hold that line. And this is where I get frustrated. It's not just people crossing that border. It's a lot of illicit contraband as well.
1: And, and I know they're seeing it on cameras and they cannot get to them. And what bothers me is they're starting to listen to some of our suggestions. They sent the military there. They sent um, park rangers, TSA, um, you know, some of the federal agents as marshals. We called for that. Except they're all being marshaled into... The cooking, the transporting—you know, like they said for TSA. Well, if you have a commercial uh, driver's license, it will need you to drive, but not towards holding the line and defending our country. I, I just
0: yes, ex-
1: I can't believe yeah, it. I,
0: and let me and I can let me tell you where they're going, um, and that's a good thing. You look, you know, you know, you you've talked to me in the past, and I said, look, this is fantastic. We're finally seeing some collaboration. TSA agents are being sent down there. They're first being pushed uh, at the ports and. Two locations where the humanitarian effort is underway to allow Border Patrol agents to go back between the ports of entry. That's absolutely the right call. That's fantastic, but it's not enough. We've got to have more people there. And look, I'm just going to put a sense of urgency to this. We need it now, not yesterday. And I sure hope someone from the administration is listening because there is absolutely no reason that we can't be sending people to that border to help Border Patrol between the ports right now. It's just a matter of doing it. It doesn't require Congress. It requires leadership, nothing more. And if for the folks listening who are thinking, well, yeah, that sounds easy, but it's there's a lot more to it. Look, I just want to tell you, the Texas Department of Public Safety, the Texas uh, Game Wardens, have all been working since 2009, doing this in Texas, sending hundreds every week to the border. So collaboration works. We know it works. We can't hire our way out of this problem, and we need to send people to that border to help hold the line now to stop this, you know, illicit contraband that's being moved into the country. And, and these are doable things. These are things that can be done right now to help protect the country.
1: Are, are you hearing from people, you know, at Texas DPS, maybe the governor's office... What they plan on doing statewide, a lot of people predicted, oh, if this gets bad enough, you know, Texas will act alone. But it's gotten worse than bad. It's gotten worse than anything Texas has dealt with. Texas is still clearly worse than any other state um, with this, much worse than California. They're coming a lot more to Texas, even more than Arizona, Um is, are you seeing any signs that there might be some action from the Texas state government?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, they're down there right now. Um, and there's a reason Texas gets hit. I mean, if you look at it, we have 1,290 miles of that border out of the 2,000. I mean, we are the largest state uh, affected by it uh, by far. So there's a lot of reasons. The other, the other thing, too, that if, if you look down in South Texas, um, it is the easiest transition point into the United States. So there's a lot of reasons that people continue to travel through the state of Tamaulipas, even though there's all the violence. What Texas has been doing is to try to set itself up for success in the long game, rather than having to send uh, troopers, Texas Rangers uh, and CID agents down to that border every week, as we did for many, many years. What they did is they went through a large hiring process over the course of almost a decade and they created duty stations down along the border. So, you know, in areas where we may have had five to six highway patrolmen at one time, uh, Rio Grande City, for example, you know, we have almost a hundred there now. So and then in, in McAllen and in other areas, we've we've hired a lot more highway patrolmen, SWAT officers, special response team members, and others who are already there to help support and work and collaborate. So that collaboration is just part of the job now to Texas. Yes, they still rotate out when they see surges of people or they get intelligence that there's going to be some type of violent interaction, as we've seen with the Gulf cartel across from Miguel Aleman, and as we've seen in the Nuevo Laredo. Uh, so they still respond to those things. And I give Texas, I give the director of Texas Department of Public Safety uh, Governor Abbott and a lot of the elected officials, a lot of credit, because unlike other states, Dan, they have really spent a lot of money. listened to their constituents who are upset about what's happening at the southwest border. And they've been they've been you know, they've been putting money to it is what I'm trying to get. I mean, Texas has spent over two point two billion dollars with a B uh, for border security. There's not another state along the southwest border that's done any of
1: that. You know, when you talk about the cartels, um, it's it's obviously amazing that we'll go halfway around the world at the drop of a hat to referee civil wars, but we have the most evil cartels right at our border. But it's worse than that; they're in the country, as we mentioned. And to kind of put an exclamation mark on your point of like, hey, what does it mean? You'll you know we'll exact the peso from you in America. Well, I thought they're in Mexico. Um, This article from Breitbart yesterday, Breitbart, Texas, out of Edinburgh, Texas, in the Rio Grande Valley. Authorities arrested several members of a Gulf Cartel cell linked to the kidnapping of two men in Texas. Um, Investigators believe the gunmen are behind several other crimes in the immediate area. Texas authorities arrested four adults and three underage teens, I'll get to that in a minute, who are now charged with various counts of organized criminal activity and aggravated kidnapping Four key gunmen, including one who is a known Gulf cartel assassin, remain on the run. Um, the case began on May 6th when a victim called 9 to report a team of gunmen in three SUVs at a house in Mission who were taking two victims at gunpoint. Court documents revealed that the two victims are identified as R- 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 Rolando Cruz Jr. and Jose Al- Alfredo Elisario, who are also allegedly linked to drug smuggling activities. The gunmen were described in the court documents as carrying tactical rifles and pistols. Um, and they go on to say that... The gunmen took the two victims to a stash house in Palmview and were originally planning on crossing them into Mexico. The gunmen were forced to change plans due to the increased patrolling at the Rio Grande by Texas and federal agencies. Interesting. I didn't read that until you you mentioned that. Um, And the gunmen ultimately beat the victims before releasing them. I'm going to link to this article in show notes. They talk about raiding Texas authorities, raiding another stash house. This is the type of stuff for years we've read about or watched in the movies in Mexico. This is on our side of the border.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, this, this, this kind of thing has actually been happening in South Texas and along the southwest border and other states for some time. And this is why I speak out on it now, specifically about the cartels, what we need to do to address it. You know, you're talking about stash houses today. Um, we, you and I both back and forth, but none of that data is captured. So as these stash houses uh, with this human trafficking epidemic that we're about to see across the country evolves, we're not going to see this virus spread across the country once again because we have an outdated reporting system. But when you get back – but to get back to the cartels and what they're doing on our side, absolutely look. We've got to be really honest here. We've had an unsecured border for a very long time. We see that Mexico is degrading every day. You know, last year they had more murders in that country than ever before, um, counting at 34,000 for 2018. And in 2019, they've already seen a 10% increase over the first three months of 2018. Mexico is having some real problems right now. These cartels have gone through a quantum leap in capabilities. You know, they're they're leveraging military grade weapons. They're operating around the world. They're being trained by special forces. We've seen that for some time. Uh, The corruption levels in Mexico are as high as it can go. And uh, Mexico's in real trouble. And we have to be honest about this. If we have an unsecure border, why would we think for a second that that would not affect us. You know, I remember the first beheading by the Gulf cartel that happened over in South Padre Island in 2015, uh, only to find out later that that was a Border Patrol agent who was part of the Gulf cartel and his henchmen um, at the directly at the request of a cartel boss. The head was never found. We received intelligence. We believed it was taken back as proof that the individual had been murdered. You know, I can I can give you these one-offs like you have been describing. There's an article here. There's an article here. But that's the problem. The American people don't need to know what is happening from articles. They need to know yep. from their government what is happening. And they need to be able to see the stats that say this crime was directly linked to transnational crime. And when you don't capture 21st century crimes, how can you ever – Yep put budgets behind
1: it, put initiatives behind it. Yep. Dan, I mean, this is or or Or, or Jason, even if they are, let's say it's an armed robbery. So that is in the uniform crime statistics, but, but it, it's reported as another robbery, which unfortunately there are a lot of robberies. There are a lot of assaults. Um, but it's not like, no, 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 you don't understand. These were four guys in a team that were trained by the cartels with tactical rifles coming and doing home invasions. um, you know, this, this is a very different story, similar to what, what I'm dealing with in, in Maryland, um, where, we, where you have more MS-13. Oh, there was a stabbing today. Well, but that's different when it's domestic versus being directed by transnational organizations.
0: That's, that, you're exactly right. But even with that, OK, if you have a, a lot of stabbings occurring in your in your area, who are they linked to? Are they linked to gangs? Our system doesn't capture that. So how do you ever focus on a new issue until you're just overrun with it? And we've seen that. Go back to 2004. I was an undercover narcotics agent. I remember when MS-13 was surging into the country. We, I didn't even know what they were. And now I'm being sent to a, to the jail down there in Hidalgo County to interview them, and they're just everywhere. And when we listen to them, where are you going? Well, we're going to the Northeast. Well, did anyone tell the Northeast that they were coming? <laughs> Absolutely not. Massive failure. Now, no. fast forward to 2006, we saw pseudoephedrine being shipped in from China to Mexico, where they became uh, making the mega labs for methamphetamine. And we saw as the cartels took over the meth markets, shipped meth throughout the country. Did anyone tell everyone on the Northeast? Absolutely not. Now, transition to Uh, The opioid epidemic that where the cartels began uh, growing their own opioid and and heroin down in in, uh, cultivating it down in the state of Durango was Sinaloa cartel. And I saw massive numbers increase over seemed like almost overnight in 2012 when Sinaloa took that over because they saw the affliction that had hit. With the opioid epidemic throughout the country, so they they took that market over as well. Where the American people told no. Now, where does this come from? Why can we have these trend patterns that are coming from the Southwest border, but yet the American people are not told? And it all goes back to what I'm talking about here with the failed Uniform Crime Report and a failed system that doesn't show as these as this illicit activity takes place and spreads across the country. So we're fixing to have it again. This crime wave is going to hit us. It's not a matter of if, it is it is happening. We are seeing it down here. And what I'm trying to do is to get around a broken system. Tell the American people what we're seeing that it is already happening and that they must prepare. And if any of your listeners are with any anti-human trafficking organizations, I'm asking them to prepare. They do an incredible work across the country. But again, law enforcement doesn't communicate well with them. So they're going to do the same thing and what i want them to do is get their budgets ready start preparing for a surge in human trafficking across the country because it's coming and you know you've heard me say this in the past and i'll say it again if we as a nation can't get the little things right like being able to see crimes as they occur and how they're linked to transnational crimes which is what we we always talk about um today whether it be human trafficking Public corruption, cyber crimes, money laundering, human smuggling. You know, it's the same discussion every day. But as a nation, our law enforcement can't see it. And if we don't get the little things right, Dan, we're never going to get the big things right. And,
1: and that's the thing in my area, particularly this part of the country, there has been a real sea change that if you look at the most wanted lists in a lot of these areas, they've really changed from predominantly blacks to hispanic sounding names and this is not about race or demography as an ends to itself there's a distinction that's important because what that indicates is that a lot of this is being driven fundamentally externally and it's a very different ballgame than domestic crime because a it's more redressable you just get them out of here they don't have a right to be here. all americans as bad as they are that's you know natural law you can't deport them Um, But B, that tells you it's a very different trend. But you're right. What I'm finding is that whenever there's an inflection point, a dramatic thing, should we airlift 1,000 illegals to Palm Beach County? Everyone's in an uproar. Nobody wants this. But what they're so good at doing is – see, if the American people would have voted on, um, for example, should we bring in 300,000 Salvadorans to the D.C. metro area? Nobody would have voted for that but instead it's a gradual catch and release at the border they go to the east coast and then you start seeing you know there's gangs there's stabbings there's machete attacks well wait a minute that wasn't organic but but that's the problem and then they get they get away with it and no one realizes where the where this comes from they treat the symptom but not the source
0: there it is they treat the symptom and not the source and the source of this is the cartels and them collecting the PISO as people be, have become a commodity, you know that's a massive change. You know it used to be drugs. When we talked about the cartels, Dan, we always sit, talked about them as the drug cartels. If you yep. notice, I don't call them that.
1: They're not. And the yeah. reason
0: is because that's no longer what they are. Now that's something they do, but it's not what they are anymore. They I, I want to get Mexico. your
1: your confirmation of this on that point. If God created a salvation in this world that nobody would feel a need to take any of this crap and it would be abolished would the cartel still exist absolutely
0: absolutely i you know it's funny i was just teaching um some some executives within law enforcement out on the west coast i just flew in last night and you know that that very question came up you know if we you know if you were king for a day and the legalization of narcotics happened in the United States, would the cartels still exist? Well, of course they would. They're just going to transition. I mean, they've moved from drugs to people. Now, that doesn't mean they don't move drugs anymore. They're moving drugs all over the the world, not just the United States. You know, that's the other big change. I think a lot of people believe that if we just legalize, because they're hearing this from the news all the time, if we just legalize narcotics in the United States, the cartels would go away. Well, they're you're wrong. I mean, they're getting two hundred thousand dollars a kilo of cocaine in Australia. They're getting a hundred thousand dollars a kilo of cocaine in Russia. Uh, if you look at the amount of money they're making out of Europe, the average kilo in Europe runs anywhere from it was much higher um, a few years ago, but they've been sending so much that now it's down to about uh, between thirty thousand and seventy thousand a kilo. And the reason is just by the sheer amount that they're sending. So. They have put themselves into the realm of global violent networks. They're operating globally. They don't just operate in Mexico. And the perception that we have had because we've been dealing with them as this drug cartel, not as to what they are, is we haven't evolved as to what, where they are and what they're doing today. I mean, the tactics they're using against the government of Mexico is unprecedented. They have killed over 200,000 people Now, you know, it's something to throw out numbers, but think of the effects of the nation of Mexico to have lost 200,000 people since 2007. I mean, you are talking about generations of people affected. So this isn't getting better. They are not going away. If we legalize drugs tomorrow, they're going to transition into something else um, because they are about what makes money. And they saw the amount of people moving into the United States and they just transitioned to treat them as a commodity. They're and make you know, a of dollars. What's really set they are making a lot of money. Let me tell you, I'm really concerned about that. It's funny you bring that up. You know, when I talk to my sources within Sinaloa, within C D N Cartel, and within Cartel Delgato, they're making money hand over fist right now. Off uh, both people and uh, all commodities that move through their plazas. And if you also notice, Dan, all the plazas in Mexico are embattled. The areas that were always off limits to organized crime, such as Playa del Carmen, Tulum, uh, uh, you know, all the play areas, Cancun and Cabo. What we see now is they are all embattled. You know. Some of these, you know, Acapulco what has been named the second most violent con- uh, city in the world. I mean, that's stunning. These are places that were always off limits to organized crime. And that goes back to some of the things that you've heard me say in the past. And that is that we must address that and we must designate the cartels as a terrorist organization. And part, one of the big things is, is, I'm not looking to have boots on the ground. What I'm looking to do is provide authorities for the Department of Defense to be able to get in there and use our special forces in collaboration with the government of Mexico's special forces to share intelligence, to help the Mexican special forces be successful. And then in other parts of the world where they are operating, to be able to do operations if need be. Because right now, until we provide the authorities, we're not going to be able to do any of that. The other part of it, is that we must limit their mobility. And one of the big things a lot of people don't realize with the terrorism designation that you get is you get the lack of, you are allowed to track them and you're allowed to stop that mobility so that they can't travel. And that's some of the things that we need to do. You would be stunned. Just out, the American people would be stunned if they could see how the cartel moved in and out of our country. Remember, they've got money. They can afford to get visas. It is stunning. And this is happening every day in our country. We are infiltrated with these people, and it's time to stop.
1: And and this is something that frustrates the heck out of me. I mean, this is something the president could do unilaterally. When we are pulling our hair out, we did – before I brought you on, I was making fun of the excuses. Oh, the district judge ate my homework. The 60-vote threshold ate my homework. There's all these excuses. But, I mean, these are things he could do unilaterally, clearly through the State Department, and the State Department's not a fourth branch of government. They must follow the president's orders. Also, you know, just talking about what I was talking about this week, both with the catch and release of, you know, these foreign national criminals, criminal aliens, but then also the lack of documentation, of tracking. So once you designated them as terrorism, that's a very different story if your local crappy Baltimore or Prince George's County, Maryland police pick up a guy like that. Oh, wait, this is a different story, which, by the way, um, I'm, I'm assuming you agree with this. I think. MS-13 also needs to be designated along with the cartels. So all these arrests in Maryland, that is a different ballgame because what's happening now is more and more they're recruiting younger and younger. I'm told that the cartels and MS-13, they know our laws so well and they know that these panty-waist losers, particularly in blue states, but increasingly in Texas, they will not do anything With juveniles. So we had this case in PG County this week where there was this machete killing um, at the hands of the 16 and 17-year-old MS-13 punks. And it turned out they were turned loose by the county a year ago when they were picked up on gang murder charges. I mean, I'm not talking about low-level drug offenses like they like to talk about. This was murder, and they were let go. I mean, forget about not being turned over to to uh, ice, that's one half of it. But even if they would have been Americans um, without ice detainers, just the fact that they never serve serious jail time. and I that's why I think you know this will add a whole new dimension to the sanctuaries as well.
0: Well, I, you know I, I, it goes back to communication and you know, how we're articulating what's happening to the American people. You know, we we continue to talk about this one crime that occurred or this incident that occurred here and there, just like you described and like you've heard me describe. But if we don't fix a system that's broken, you know, it's not so much Republican and Democrat. What I have found, and and I'll tell you, Dan, I travel the country. I talk to uh, a lot of people about this. um, And, you know, my goal is to tell the people what is happening because it's affecting them and their loved ones. And our government just doesn't do it well. But when I sit down from all walks of life, what I find is they all say the same thing to me. Jason, why are we not being told this? And the reason is because of this failed uniform crime reporting. You know, they're not lying when they say we don't see what you see because the stats don't show it. I mean, I'm being told that by executives in law enforcement across the country. They're truly not lying. Yes, they had a murder but they didn't do the background to see how he was linked to transnational crime. Yes, they had a robbery, but they don't know how it was linked to transnational crime because no one did that check. Yes, he was illegal. Do you see what I'm getting at? We don't have a system that does it, but every time that I can sit down and show people how it's happening and how it affects them, in Texas, what we did is we created something and it was in a collaborative format. We call it the the unified command concept. And we collaborated with every local police department and sheriff along the southwest border. And every incident that they had, they would report to the Border Security Operations Center with a latitude and a longitude, the type of crime and how it was linked to transnational crime. And then I would have over 30 analysts that would pour through the data, link it through other databases linked to U.S. Customs and Border Protection to show those transnational crime links. And then we would put together a weekly border operations sector assessment of over 100 pages in a week, Dan, that showed the level of transnational crime happening just on the border itself. Now, this wasn't, you know, Texas is big. We've got 254 counties. But what this allowed, at least just the, the first two counties along that border, every law enforcement agency, we could at least collect that data. And it was astounding. I mean, when you could see the level of impact from the, from the unsecure border, people ask me all the time, you know, how did Texas get $880 million for border security um, in one legislative session? I'll tell you, Dan, all we did was show our elected officials what was really happening. That's all we did. That's all we had to do. And I will promise you, if we can do that across the country, we will get buy-in from both the Democrats and the Republicans. We will get buy-in from the American people, and they will see how our nation is affected. And until we do that, until we provide the ability to see it, we're not going to be able to make the changes we need. That's just the truth.
1: You know, Jason, I I literally had this conversation with – Mark Morgan earlier this week he's gonna hopefully next week I think step up as acting ice director and I talked him talked him about data and narrative and PR on the on that that side of ice is just as important as an operational strategy because it works in tandem with it and the need to quantify because I know this I've explained it in dozens of articles. Um, we know I mean, you go to Maryland, Virginia, it is shocking the percentage of the worst crimes that come from illegal aliens. But it's not, this stuff is not put out there. I'm often the first one reporting on it. And um, I got to get, get him in touch with you on this point because I think, you know, that model that you're talking about in Texas, it's really amazing. We're going to have to leave it at that. Thanks so much for joining us, Jason. Um, you're always welcome to come back anytime when you have new stuff to brief us on. And have yourself a terrific and meaningful Memorial Day weekend.
0: Hey, you as well. And to the folks out there, uh, thanks for the opportunity to talk with them. And uh, please prepare because we've got some challenges coming that as a nation we have to address. Dan,
1: take care. It's good talking to you, buddy. Take care. God bless. And again, as always, let me know what questions you have for our guest. We could ask him next time. I could ask him offline and speak with you guys over this town hall Um, with what he tells me. uh, You know, you, you think about how not just wide open our border is, but how it's become a cesspool where they take advantage of us, they do whatever they want, they destroy our communities, and yet we send our men to die for nothingness and emptiness halfway around the world, but we'll not use them for the way they're supposed to be used. I might talk about this a little bit more Maybe it'll be Tuesday after Memorial Day. We're, at, we're out of time here. But it just truly does amaze me that even today, even with the lack of mission, there are people willing to give up their lives, even when they have terrible direction from a political leadership. Um, you know, Calvin Coolidge said on Memorial Day in uh, 1927, I believe. In his speech, actually 1923, it was May 30th, 1923. It used to be called Decoration Day at the time. Now it's Memorial Day. They used to decorate the graves and still do. Um, It is not that principle that leads to conflict, but tranquility. This principle of devotion and sacrifice he's talking about. It is not that principle which is the cause of war, but the only foundation of an enduring peace. There can be no peace with forces of evil. Peace comes only through the establishment of the supremacy of the forces of good. That way lies only through sacrifice. It was that the people of our country might live in a knowledge of the truth that these, our countrymen, are dead. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. This spirit is not dead. It is the most vital thing in America. It did not flow from any act of government. It is the spirit of the people themselves, it justifies faith in them and faith in their institutions. And certainly, that spirit isn't dead. We still do have people in this country that are willing to fight and even die for our country. But my gosh, could we have the ability from our political leadership to actually fight for our country and not for other people's countries? Leaving our country exposed and ravaged while we spend... Trillions of dollars in Niger and Afghanistan. Something to consider as we enjoy our family time, our barbecues, to salute our military, those that died in defense of this country, rings truer today than ever before. Thank you, everyone in our audience that has served both the living and the dead. We'll do it all again next week. Probably not till Tuesday, so it's going to be a long time. I know those of you who are addicted to this show, as I am addicted to this platform of speaking the truth, will be a little bit tough, but it's good to have a break. Till next week, God bless you all. May God bless our veterans of this great armed forces.